Mike Lester here from Farm Equipment and No-Till Farmer. Thanks for joining us for How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs. Today, I'm with Joe Bassett, President and CEO of Dawn Equipment, in a conversation that we recorded while we found ourselves in the same hotel while on the road. I've got quite a few years on Joe, but he and I share a common anniversary. We both officially joined our dads in the family business in the same year, 2003. Joe's first decade at Dawn saw 10 years of consecutive straight line growth until corn prices nosedived and recalibrated most everyone's sales charts. Those early adopter farmers are the ones that have let me do what I do. If we didn't have that small group of early adopting innovator farmers that are willing to take a chance on products, companies like us couldn't exist. That's Don CEO Joe Bassett on how it's a small percentage of farmers willing to take a chance on the newest and niche equipment innovations that keeps companies like his in the game. In today's recording, Joe's going to tell us about our business, now fully owned by him at age 38. He covers a lot of ground in this recording, including history, dad, Jim, and some fresh perspectives and lessons learned, as well some insights that he sees as a 30-something leader for the next generation workforce and also the kind of thing that keeps a product design-minded CEO like him up at night. Before we hit the play button, quick nod to our sponsor, Ingersoll Tillage. For more, visit www.ingersolltillage.com. So here we go, the conversations with Joe Bassett of Don Equipment. Someone says, well, tell me what Don Equipment's all about. What, how would you answer that question? What Don does is we try and make the smartest ground engaging devices in the world. We only make things that either directly touch the soil or are involved with how things touch the soil. Obviously, we've shifted from making really basic planter attachments to now making incredibly sophisticated computer controlled ones to high efficiency tillage. I, th I think the undercurrent of all the products is that they're always kind of at the edge of you know, technology and what's going on in industry trends. Very much a, a design engineering company, first and foremost, is that fair to say? Oh yeah, I don't know how we could stay in business otherwise. We have to design as part of just what we do and who we are, what I do. I don't identify as a executive or CEO, I identify as a product designer. In the end, you know, having something to sell, knowing what your customers need and is the most important thing. So I always think like, okay, what is the most important thing for me to be working on? Well, that's understanding what my customers need today, a year from now and five years from now. You're definitely cut differently than a lot of executives. I know we've, we've talked about your self-taught casting designer, those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, I, I come from a product design background. I, I grew up, um, actually uh, doing a lot of mechanical stuff. I was involved in the business from a very young age. Always loved mechanical stuff. You know, I started um, working on uh, sports cars when I was 15. I was featured in the Lego Builder magazine when I was a child. I built a robotic hand when I was in college. And so I like making farm equipment. I mean, and it's one of the few fields where an individual inventor can make something and kind of do it, you know, in automotive or aerospace or medical or a lot of other kind of design fields, architecture. It's not a guy can't just, 
go to a garage you know that's this industry and the the industry that that your that farm equipment and lesser publications uh serves is is that kind of cottage industry where the individual inventor can go out to the farm show and even though that's really changing now you know where you'd you'd have the farmer inventor or I like to think of Don as epitomizing the independent spirit of American agriculture. Mm -hmm. Take us back into the, the corporation of Don and, and what your dad was doing at the time and, and what the thought process was when you decided to, to launch the company. And I was really a kid, but the way that it worked actually was my father does have some, um, he's a professional engineer. He comes from a mechanical engineering background. I was born in Davenport. My father had been working at Harvester Works at the time. Uh, they left there, much to my mother's chagrin. She evidently liked being on John Deere Health Insurance. Yeah. Um, we moved to Minneapolis-St. Paul. We lived in St. Paul. My father worked at the Toro Company designing golf course, turf care products. And then uh, from there, when I was in maybe second grade, we moved to the DeKalb Sycamore area of Northern Illinois and where we live currently. My father had started working at what was Barber Green, which was a manufacturer of paving and road construction equipment. And at some point in the early 90s, uh, Barber Green was gonna sell out to Caterpillar. And at the local church that we went to there in DeKalb, the Catholic Church, um, the Newman Center, we met another family, the Favors, and the company got started actually kind of in talking with Steve Favor, who later had a significant career. He was an electrical engineer, he went to the University of Illinois, but he was a large farming family locally, and he was kind of at the absolute cutting edge of precision farming. And they got together and they decided to start a company, and the company was actually started in the basement of the Favor farm out on Fairview Road in DeKalb. And that's where I remember going over there as a kid and the first product actually, this was kind of, you know, people don't remember, but Ridge Till was a big deal back then. We had a Ridge Till publication one time. You, there was yeah. actually a Ridge, Ridge Till. Ridge Till hotline, yep. And Ridge Till, and, and I remember in my early days, you know, people talking about Buffalo was like such a big company and talk about mm -hmm. the history of like short lines. Buffalo is still around, right? Yeah. And, and, and the first product we made was actually a Ridge Till product, which was called the T-Knife. And it was a knife for ammonia that you'd run in between the rows of ridges and then it would shoot a, a band of ammonia out under the ridge. I'm not totally clear on how it worked, but Howard Martin, who was the original patent holder of the toothed wheel row cleaner, had sold his patent to John Deere. Every farmer inventor probably shops their idea to John Deere. And for whatever reason, this toothed wheel row cleaner design, John Deere had decided to not produce it internally. And what my father, Jim, has told me is that John Deere came in and basically talked to a few people and they relicensed the Martin intellectual property to three companies. That was us, back to Martin, and to Yetter. And that's how we got into no-till and road cleaning because, you know, at that time in the early 90s, Roundup came around and it was just like, whoa, all of a sudden weed control just got way easier and farming got super simple and all of a sudden no-till became a heck of a lot easier to do no-till because you had um, glyphosate and you know they were like okay well now we can get into no-till and so we started making the tooth wheel row cleaner and that's really where the core 
engineering fundamentals of Dawn. Making the heaviest built, longest lasting stuff we can possibly make. The Dawn tooth wheel road cleaner was always a forged wheel, very good steel, 100% American made, just good quality features. And they started selling like gangbusters. Mm -hmm. And the company- What year would that have been? That would have been in 1993 to 1996 area. You know, it's just up and to the right. We moved out of the basement at the Favor Farm, and then we moved to a little tiny factory on Route 64 on the east edge of Sycamore. That's still there today. And I remember being there because I was already around at that time. You know, I'd push a broom or some of the employees at that time, you know, nobody wanted to do inventory. So I was, you know, 12 or 13. Yeah. They would make me do, uh, I would actually have to do inventory and stuff. But... You know, those were good times. There was another partner, a gentleman named Lee Prutney, who owned the local case dealer chain and uh, was also a partner. Sales grew really rapidly on the no-till road cleaner products and things kind of went up and to the right. And, you know, my father, like a lot of people, looked at the planners that were out there at that time. You know, they got into all sorts of attachments, like John Deere put out the 750 drill and they didn't put a marker on it. So we made a marker and other kind of stuff like that. Jim decided to make what he thought would be the best planter in the world, which is a big jump from when you start making something that's right. like this big to making something that is a complete toe behind implement. They did some debt financing and like it was a big project. I remember today, I can't imagine doing it with AutoCAD, mm -hmm. doing it with uh, 2D. It was kind of an interesting time. It still would be a very innovative planter today. It was, his philosophy was high-speed planting before anyone even thought of it. It was about smaller high-speed planters. There's no advantage in business to being ahead of your time. Uh, it had a unique metering system. It had a hydraulic down pressure system. Some of the things that he got into then, actually the, those ideas kind of percolated back up now in our product line as we get into like the reflex planter automation system, mm -hmm. the active control systems that we're making for some of the stuff for the planters. That project, it was gonna sell, but he kind of ran out of runway. It wasn't from a financial standpoint and it did end up bringing the company to the brink of insolvency in the late 90s when I was actually in college at that time. I'd worked there throughout my childhood. I remember the faces from back then. Every business has those moments that you recover from. Actually, it was a profound moment for us in the way we run our business up to today. And it has some kind of interesting... So the byproduct of going through bankruptcy at that time was that it basically forced us... We started self-funding. We started running the business entirely on cash flow. and. And so I came into my career effectively in a business situation, which was you have to make money and make sales. Otherwise, you don't make payroll and always having that discipline, which I frankly think is a really turned out to be one of the greatest gifts that I have. Like today, I just acquired Jim's half of the company from him that at the age of 37, I own a business of this size 100%. I have effectively a debt-free business, and it's a slog. Yeah. I mean, anybody up and down this aisle, it, farming's a slog. The industry is so up and down. Although, to be quite honest, 
went through chapter 11, late 90s. Jim just hung on. I mean, I can't believe it because he really, I think he, the other, you know, Steve. It's harder to hang on than it, it is, is to walk away. It is. And everybody got paid. Um, and, you know, Steve had to leave the company. It just shrunk down. Steve went to do other stuff at other places. So, the, you know, the company had shrunk way down. But we always had a market for those core products, the curve tine, the, the screw adjust trash. There was always people that bought those core basic products from us that kept the business afloat because of, you know, never compromising on the quality of the product is what I learned from that, where if you always focus on making really the best thing you can possibly make, then that's always a leg to stand on. Whereas once you give up on quality, if when you're in dark times, you know, you don't why do your customers have any reason to stick by your side? So when I actually joined the company in 2003, I went to the University of Iowa. I actually studied physics at the University of Iowa, not engineering. I had a great time there. I did a machinist apprenticeship while I was at the University of Iowa. There was a machine shop that was operated at the Department of Physics, so I did get a lot of exposure to where I could just build things. Like I said, I built a robotic human hand. I built a, um, a motorcycle. I just got to do a lot of stuff. I used to make lab experiments, and that was really great for me. I was also getting into computing and other things at that time, too. And at one point, there was really a question of the vast majority of people did not think that joining the the family business was the right, right career choice for me. And I had other offers and in the end did decide to come back to join the business. And that was one of those critical fork in the road decisions that mm -hmm. you're going to make. So well, um, it was a conscious decision. You had other opportunities you could mm -hmm. pursue and Absolutely. you had to stop and think which would. Absolutely. It's, it's starting from somewhere is better than starting from nowhere. And I always like making stuff out of metal. Mechanical things have always been really what I'm interested in. And so it, it worked out and those early <laughs> we tried a lot of different things from like 2003 to like 2007 we made some far out toolbars that's when i designed the first strip till device i i honestly cannot looking back at it i cannot believe some of the things we were doing you just have to learn from experience i'm sure you know looking back at your business you think some of the things you thought about 10 years ago or 15 years ago you, you just can't even believe but you know, we started making the strip till units in around 2005. Those started selling and continued to evolve. Uh, and that provided a little bit of growth for the company. We made the first remotely controllable planter attachment in the world in about 2006, 2007 with the GFX row cleaner, which now kind of hydraulic stuff in your planter is ubiquitous at that time. We didn't even one of the differences with us is that we have the audacity to actually make it ourselves. You know, if we, we have machines, like if you go to Don equipment, there's like people with machines and we, we make the thing too. Mm -hmm. And that kind of started clicking. Planters started getting bigger and you started thinking, you know, I'd go out to a customer's farm and you're, we're dialing knobs to adjust your row cleaners. And you're like, ah, oh, this just doesn't, it could take you an hour to go 36 rows doing this. And so we, we started making those. That started clicking, and we actually started learning how to make hydraulic compact actuation products at that time, more or less just by learning on the go. Mm. Around 2007, 2008, 2009, that started clicking. The 2000, around 2009, the Pluribus strip till unit, 2008, 2009, that started turning into something which was at least a partially mature product, although it's really not going to become a fully mature product until actually this year. I haven't redesigned the Pluribus Strip Till Unit mm -hmm. in um, 
in like six years or seven years, and I'm, I'm, we're going to do an actual redesign this year. In every business, there's those points where you can say, it's clear we're going to make it now. Was there a defining moment of that sort that really... Uh, you could tell that the GFX Road Cleaner sells and continues to sell, and that moved us into a different place than we were before. Mm. That was a product that works extremely well and continues to work really well. And not only that, it lasts for a really long time. That was one of the main things that just like clicked. And that was set like the table that we're going to do it. We're going to make well, we're going to make hydraulically automated things for the planter. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then we go from there, and then we look at it, and part of it is just by luck being in the right place. So so we were already in 2007 making a hydraulically controlled planter row cleaner that was a double acting spring with an accumulator in it, just by dumb luck. Well, I mean, it wasn't. I was actually looking at suspension designs from other heavy vehicles and thinking about how we could use that. And then we started looking at the down pressure, right? And the John Deere planter row unit had gone from springs to an airbag with the XP row unit, I think in like 2000, around that same time. And then Around that sort of 2007, 2008 period, Precision Planting introduced the Air Force product, which was the double airbags, automatically kind of controlling the down pressure on the planter row unit. And I looked at it and I was like, well, we're already making this hydraulic row cleaner attachment. Why don't we just make a hydraulic down pressure product too? And when we decided, you know what, we're going to actually make a computer controlled product. That, that was a big step for us because going from making something which has 40 parts and is like two, made out of tubing welded together and like screws and stuff to something which is a active hydraulic control system for a planter row unit. If I had had people with actual expertise, I wouldn't have probably done it. If yeah. I would have known, we did not even know what we didn't know. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna make a control system. We're going to actually make our own cylinders, like these precision cylinders too, from scratch. That put us on a course that took several years to kind of figure out how to make these things correctly and make them with quality. And thank goodness we, we happened to have some really important early patent filing dates because of just kind of being in the right place at the right time. And that will provide the core of a business moving forward because we made the first row by row controllable down pressure system. That stuff started clicking a couple of years ago. Honestly, supplying the factory product to John Deere has actually taught us how to do quality control on a level which is way up because we have learned how to do quality control at a very, very high level, right. which is required to make products like that. And it's more or less transformed our business to the point where we, I don't even know that we shouldn't be making products that aren't outside of agriculture. When you look mm. at the things we make, I, it's like we could be making a lot of different things, which is kind of a fear for me that we would lose that focus on what we do. I mean, so that really, really started clicking um, on the automatic down pressure control front. The idea that so, there's so much attention that had been given to meters and spacing and singulation and clutches, but the uniformity of emergence. Like, I want to be the uniform emergence company. How do we make the furrow? How do we clear the residue? How do we close it? A couple of years ago, 
I started thinking about how we could make the first fully robotic planter row unit. In 2007, we made the first thing where a farmer could just turn a knob. So he used to have to stop, open up the door, climb down, go back to the planter, do a bunch of knobs, right? Mm -hmm. And so a couple of years ago, we had that moment where we're like, this is the same time that we were at back then. If we have some things that are automatic, why not have it all automatic? I mean, eventually everything's gonna be automatic. Yeah, and so to today, we just introduced the first range of products that can fully automate the planter row unit so you could never leave the seat of your tractor cab and control every aspect of yeah. it. So I just asked you about the time where you turned the corner. Were there other defining moments that kind of annealed you in the fire, like you mentioned that post-bankruptcy, you know, after the planter um, project? For me, you know, my career really started in 2003. Our top line revenue never went down between 2003 and 2014. We continued to grow the business linearly between 2003 and 2014. What was a defining moment for me was realizing that we are building an industry on the back of corn and that it is not just, you can't take for granted that corn is worth something or that there's a market for it. I get to do what I do because there is net farm income mm -hmm. and because my customers have money to spend on technology and products like ours. And if the customers have no money, then they can't. You can be doing every single thing right. Perfect strategy, perfect product plan, perfect everything. And if the customers have no money, you can't sell anything to them. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what kind of happened when the market readjusted in the 2014 period was I was just like, whoa, we just had our first year over year decline. And then we had another year over year decline in 2015. And at some point you actually start thinking, well, I need to be running a smaller business or I need to be, we have fewer people working there. And the mistake I should, I should have actually cut more sooner. In hindsight, I wish I would have cut more sooner because it just, that, that would have been the wiser thing to do. It was almost vanity to think that like, you know, I'll just, we'll just kind of engineer our way around it. And in practice, that was pretty hard to do. Mm -hmm. And just, just coming to realize that it is a cyclical business, sometimes things will go down and that doesn't necessarily have to be a uh, adjudication on, on yourself. Was that um, about the, the time that you took the wheel from Jim? Yeah, I mean, Jim had kind of, you know, I hear from a lot of my customers. My father was a staple on the farm show circuit forever. He was larger than life care. Everybody in the business right. knew him. He was notorious for showing up at farm shows late. You know, that we have this, this um, reputation that plagues us to this day of being the perpetually late company yeah. um, about, but being perpetually late also me, I think is kind of cool because it goes back to the fact that we're doing this all with our own money, right? There's not a big team of people. We're living within our means. Everyone at Dawn Equipment, Dawn Equipment's a company that people want to work at that want to have big impact, that people that want to have big roles. And I want to let people that want to have big roles have big roles where they can do things. But it, we're constantly running at that edge. And so my, you know, my father is always that guy, like the, the big character out there. He thankfully kind of moved aside, mm -hmm. I think. Um, he's, going to do, he's going to do really well. I, I think there's a lot of examples out there in the industry where you have that older generation not able to step aside. It's very hard for most of it, right? He has to work probably to give you the room to, to run the company your way. Yeah. Well, yeah. now he has a second kind of 
life. I mean, my, my father actually, he raises Herefords. He sells the beef at the farmer's market. He's actually teaching high school physics. He has this complete second life that he seems to be doing pretty well. I intend to, to pay him a lot of money and that he can, the sweat equity that he put in not letting the company go out of business. I mean, that starting point, having that name that means quality, that customers identify with, that starting with some customers, that's a big, that was a big starting point for me. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I don't, um, I'm not gonna gloss over the fact that having that starting point was a very valuable thing and it would have been difficult to get where I, would, mm -hmm. where I am as quickly otherwise. We'll get back to the story of Don Equipment in a moment, but first a shout out to Ingersoll Tillage who supported us in bringing these personal stories to you. For every tillage and planting practice out there, there's an Ingersoll product to help achieve that optimal seedbed. Like Dawn Equipment, Ingersoll is a longtime sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference. In fact, they've arranged for a special rate for podcast listeners for the 2018 event in Iowa City. Just use the special discount code AGRISOLUTIONS. And now back to Joe Bassett, so sit back and enjoy part two of the podcast. Where'd the Dawn name come uh, from? So the dawn of a new era in agriculture. My father would always joke that he would always run into the waitress named Dawn at the truck stop and we lose a lot of hats to it. But you know, <laughs> I, I, uh, we're gonna kind of freshen up our brand a little bit um, in the near future. You know, I'm, I'm really proud of being in business for 25 years yeah. and I hope that staying an independent company, being in business for 25 more years is actually going to, rec it's gonna be a technical challenge because what it's gonna require doing is every implement that is going to become a smart implement, right? Like every single thing is gonna become, you know, as automation increases, something that has some digital component to it. And what the industry doesn't have right now is a clear pathway forward, a clear framework where independent third-party digital things will interface with other independent third-party digital mm -hmm. things. If an independent, you know, or another company like, uh, I was at InfoEgg and I was talking with the guys from Veris or mm -hmm. from Soil Optics, these other sensor companies, right? Well, look at our new planter products that you could be changing the depth of the planter on the go. You could be reconfiguring a number of different things about the planter right on the go. Is there gonna be a open, accepted framework where independent products can interface with other independent mm -hmm. products. I think we are actually going to have to innovate in that way. And some of the choices we're gonna make in the next year, I think are going to be towards the direction that we decide to go with the Reflex product line. This is my prediction. If you file this away and look at it 15 years ago, we are going to be the bellwether of what becomes the open data standardization in the American farm equipment business or what is the future of ISOBUS, or what becomes a new type of data exchange um, system too. Yeah. Because we, we now will make a product where you could be planting and you could have four row by row independent data layers. Mm -hmm. Well, they need to go somewhere. They need to go to, they, need, they, they, they only have value if the end user can look at them juxtaposed with every other thing he's doing on his farm. The value you get from data is that every single thing you do will be juxtaposed on top mm -hmm. of it. And then how do you do that? How do you do it in a way that does right by farmers too? Mm -hmm. 
And I think that we're literally at a, another inflection. Like I think Dawn came about at an inflection point in farming in the early 90s. And we're going to be right there at another inflection point here as we kind of yeah. move into the robotic age of farming. Yeah. Why is it important for American agriculture to have independent suppliers like yourself? Because we're, we just drive the pace of innovation so much faster. One of the things that I always intend to do, no matter how big the company gets, is I'm always going to be taking sales calls. I am always going to be looking at the internet. I just can't believe that as an executive, you can't get too far away from your, the customers. Like they, they are constantly like, we have to just be, I mean, I don't know, how could we not have any competition? I mean, it's, it's the role of the independents to provide the unique innovations. Mm. I, like we were talking about before, what I think is at risk in this market is not that you won't have small startup companies in agriculture. I feel that you'll have basically, the industry will become bifurcated into simply large companies and then very, very small companies. And that what we will be losing is the mid-market. And that also comes to, that. that is actually a technical problem. That is an electronic problem. How do companies, short-line companies, make products that interface with other short-line products and OEM products? Mm -hmm. And the next steps that happen in the industry are going to really determine what happens there. It sounds like you're you're in a position you're going to be in a position to drive the conversation. I, I hope so. I want to keep I want to keep doing it. I mean, I I really enjoy what I do. I mean, it's a drag running a business. I mean, anybody that runs a business, I what we're about fifty people right now. It's not always fun and games. I don't know. I mean, what could, what could be better than than doing this, mm -hmm. making stuff? What I need to get better at is convincing a younger generation. And it's crazy that I'm already becoming cognizant of like I, <laughs> of a younger generation, but guys coming up in their 20s, we need to get better. I think as, as short line and smaller companies, we need to get better at attracting young talent, retaining young talent, and bringing people up, right? Identifying people that are, if you wanna be engineer one of 400 at big company, you're not gonna be a fit for my company, right? right? But you know, I talk to a lot of guys and they say, why do people end up at, you know, just in the grind at the big companies is because they're the ones out doing the recruiting, right? And so how do we, we need to get better at recruiting. We need to get better at identifying talent, retaining talent, recruiting and bringing people in and, and finding people, because it really is a joy. Having big impact is a joy. That it's, pri it's a privilege. What I hate seeing is having younger people in their 20s leave my company to go to a bigger company when knowing full well that they might turn around 10 years, 15 years later to realize what a joy it is to have that kind of impact where you can sit down, design and talk to the customer, recognize the need for the product, design something that fulfills that customer's need, make a prototype, test it, sell it, get, you know, that the whole thing. Right. That, that that has real value. That I feel like is something that I wish we could get through to people better. And, and that, that's gonna be a, that's gonna be a struggle. I've recently decided, um, we've had some kind of uh, turnover recently, and that really profoundly affected me. Lost a couple of team members that, I was like, why, why are you leaving the company? I mean, it's, I, sometimes it's about money, sometimes it's about other things. And the one thing I've realized is that what I have to do about our company, I've got to put you into the middle class, at least. What does it take if you, if you want to buy a house in America today, have a family, get married, do all this stuff? 
What does it take to put you in the middle class? Mm-hmm. You know what? It's, it, it's a lot more. And what we need to do is think of like, we need to start from there. If I'm gonna keep you and you're gonna enjoy being on this team, work is great, but if it's not working for you as your total life picture, your work-life balance, you're not gonna be happy at work. And so what I have to start from is, how do I create roles that are big enough roles in the company that I can pay you enough to get you into the middle class, where you can actually have that life and have some ability to move yourself forward. And then, and then I'm starting from there. This is my new thing. Not just like, I don't want like, I want a smaller group of people and say, how do I, I, and every person needs to have a big enough universe inside of their work where they can generate the return on investment that's required to put them into that life. If I, if I can't give you a big enough universe to pay you to do that, that's a mistake. That's not a role. Because that's the only way that I'm really going to retain and build people and, and have career employees. Younger employees coming in, those team members, you know, you read a lot in the business press about millennials and work and, and job hopping, like this constant difficulty retaining, you know, millennial talent and this constant like job hopping around, right? And, and, and versus even team members I have in that are 30 something, 40 something team members, mm-hmm. where I, I think millennials actually get a bad rap about not being loyal to a company. I think companies also need to think about work in a way where you are thinking about careers instead of jobs. And that was a mistake I, I made also. And that was a turning point for me, is realizing that I need to actually manage people. The little things too, I hear all the time, my father didn't actually, um, he wasn't what you would call in any way a great manager of people, I think, but pe- guys loved how he would always bring in donuts and it costs like no money and you would be surprised how men- how much I hear <laughs> about like things like donuts. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to constantly think to myself, like, I need to think about the little things. I need to think about, it really matters a lot yeah. more to them. That, that's interesting because I've known Jim for, a, I don't know, 10, 12 years. Very tough. But, you know, it takes time to do a, a small gesture like that to, you know, keep the people engaged, you know. That, that's what I need to do. Yeah. And really, this industry is a much smaller place than you think. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people are very interconnected. The thing about the agricultural industry is it's not a big world. Mm-hmm. And the world of planters is not a big world. And I really think that, you know, reputation is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a reputation will, will stick to you for a long time. And so it's, it is kind of like a a family and I'm increasingly, as I'm getting older, becoming cognizant, like, like you guys are kind of like the standard bearers for our little market segment, um, that it, it is, it is, uh, it is our little, um, it has a disproportionate significance and the things that we're doing, um, with, uh, our, with cover crops and other stuff. I was tweeting recently about how, uh, much credit other people like uh, Elon Musk get for like electric cars and all this other stuff. And I was hypothesizing that the change that we will bring in cover crops along with some of the other just thought leaders and innovators and the farmers and all of the people and you know, that have started, that is a broad sweeping social change mm-hmm. that will probably take more carbon dioxide out of the air and put the carbon back in the ground than anything else. And it will all happen just kind of silently over a 10 or 15 year period no, without anybody realizing it's even happening without any kind of, um, I think that it's not what we're doing can actually have great social significance and great impact on the, the climate and the world. 
I just am so, uh, so happy. The one thing I could probably close on is how important there's a little sliver of the farming population that's like 5% of those early adopters. Those early adopter farmers are the ones that have let me do what I do. That, that guy who's the, who, who, and there's some of them that are, they, they, that will take a chance. If we did not have that small group of like early adopting innovator farmers that are willing to take a chance on products, companies like us couldn't exist. You know, if, cause the center of the bell curve is always waiting for what their neighbor does. Mm -hmm. It's a super socially biased world. And, and, and the fact that there are, is that little group of farmers that are the kind of against the grain farmers, though they are the ones that have actually allowed us to um, develop mm -hmm. because they'll, they'll actually take a chance on you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm really grateful to them more than anything. We talked about your dad's generation and your own childhood memories that included Howard Martin, Al Myers, Greg Sauter, John Kinzenbaugh, uh, most of whom we were you doing. Know, like my, when, uh, my father, I remember when we moved into our facility um, and we installed this powder coating system, uh, Kinsey was up and coming. And I mentioned, and uh, John Kinzenbaugh came by to visit at one point. And um, I, I already talked about how Al Meyer was kind of in that same group and you have like companies and there's kind of like peer, like a whole kind of group of peers that are mm. people that were the founders of um, companies at that time. And uh, I wonder who my peers are gonna be when I'm, uh, when I'm 50 mm -hmm. or 60. Yeah, you're, you're one of the, you're 37. Uh -huh. So you're 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 well below the average. You know, there's going to be people have going out before some of your peers are coming in. I want to take on. Uh, I want to take on a bigger. I want to get into bigger projects too. Mm -hmm. I want to actually. Um, how much more can we do with the the true V planter row unit? I mean, how much more? I just you look at the world, and I'm just like, man, there's going to be some crazy change. I mean, mm -hmm. with gene, gene editing. You know what really scares me? perennial corn like you ever think like how much like it's it, and in technology <laughs> yeah. people always talk about like it's not the competitor that gets you it's like the stuff that comes out of left field that you would mm, never think yeah. like it's like what if you just never plant corn anymore yeah, I mean, yeah. what if yeah. it's just it's a grass right it is yeah. it's a grass yeah. like why do we plant it all the time yeah. i mean there's got to be a solution to that mm -hmm. somebody would I mean, it would totally undo everything. Talk about Jim for a minute. Tell me about his background. How did he get into all this? No, uh, actually, uh, my father's actually from New Jersey. He talks about really wanting to leave New, New Jersey. He did not like it there. And he, I think he left New Jersey when he went to uh, the Air Force Academy. And then he went from the Air Force Academy to uh, the University of Wisconsin. That's when he got into Badgers. mechanical engineering. <laughs> Um, and so he, you know, he was in a lot of kind of equipment design areas. Uh, and it wasn't until when Dawn was founded, I, Jim was not working in agriculture at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, he'd always had an interest in it. So that, that, that by itself is very unique as a entrepreneur, founder company, didn't, didn't grow up on the farm and, and see it. He came, brought an outside perspective to, to all this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. I mean, I didn't grow up on a farm either. Mm -hmm. I grew up in an agricultural business, 
I don't know that it's good to, I mean, it's good in a way, but... It can be limiting, too, because it, of your, the paradigm you're operating from, right? Yeah, I don't really, I'm not, I don't think it's a great thing. I think you, it is tough to break, have really outside-the-box thinking when you're, when you're actively in that world, because you're only thinking, like, kind of, like, very close at hand, I would mm -hmm. say, you know, so, uh, yeah, I mean, he does really like farming, you know, he raises cows now, mm -hmm. and he, he likes it. I personally, um, I have no interest in animal agriculture. I'm interested in the technical problems that I deal with. I'm interested in, I, I wouldn't farm myself. Uh, I don't, I think it's a great lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I see my customers, I think it is, is for some of them, it, it looks really nice you know to you get to kind of call your own shots when you're a farmer yeah. but any other anecdotes that you remember about the the time that the company got started in the early years there were some really funny times i remember when i just bought one of the paradigm planters back to keep in my collection and it was one that i believe had been bought by case right when the company was about to go through bankruptcy and i was able to acquire that back i think that that's a great one I remember going to the patent attorneys when we were litigating about the yield monitor, and I, I think I must have been maybe 13 or 14, and going to Chicago and going up into this building and like having like a couple of yield monitors sit on a table, and I remember like making some points about the two designs and that the patent attorneys actually took me seriously. Yeah, and that was, was a, a 14 year old. That was a really uh, significant memory for me. I used to build things too, like build things in the factory all the time. I remember how, I don't know, I don't know how it, it's crazy that it ended up this way. It could have gone so many other ways. When we first introduced the GFX Road Cleaner and we went out to South Dakota and we started <laughs> and we ran it and it was kind of like, everything was great, you know, and this is, this, this moment scarred me forever. You know, you're running the field, everything's good, and you're like, you get in the car, and we, we, we were in kind of central South Dakota, and I got, we got to about Jackson, Minnesota. Your phone rings, and like the arms had all, every single one starts breaking at exactly <laughs> the same place. And that profoundly scarred me to this day, where I have a fear, when I'm like starting a new product, I have a fear of leaving a customer's farm, because it's always when you leave, as soon as you leave, something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. Also, when I was a child, at the early era of dawn, I remember, and this was in the very early years, how there was this like Gladys Knight and the Pips album that they would always sing in the office. And that we were in this <laughs> tiny little office, this dingy little office. And then you'd go in and there would be like these kind of oversized guys singing Gladys Knight. It was, <laughs> in hindsight, it was a funny games. What do you think? I mean, how long have you been in the business? I came back 2003, so I've been back Same, for Same years. as me. So what did you do before that? I was uh, working at, in metals engineering, running two magazines in the Chicago area. So came back to the family business, moved, moved family to Wisconsin at that point. So, How did your dad get into this business? He said that milking cows made him want to be an ag journalist. So he had decided he got a dairy science degree and decided he was going to help people farm by you know communicating new methods and that kind of thing so he got into the publication business pretty early on did some livestock did a bunch of things and then uh, was hired to launch no-till farmer for another publisher in milwaukee and 
72. So he's been the only editor-in-chief of No-Till Farmer 45 years now. So. Is he retired? No, he works three and a half days a week. Very much loves to do what he, he does and, you know, <laughs> empowered several of us to back in the uh, place to run different divisions, but he does what he wants to do now, which is write stories, comes in, takes pictures, he's writing a book right now. In fact, he probably needs to connect with your dad on the book project. She called me, mate. He has time. Thanks to Joe for his story. And I do want to say a final word of thanks to Ingersoll Tillage, who supported our time, travel, and production in bringing these last six stories of family-run farm equipment manufacturers to you. Check them out at www.ingersolltillage.com. And to take advantage of the special rate on the National Strip Tillage Conference, remember to use the discount code AGRISOLUTIONS. Since our sit-down, Joe started a new company called Underground Agriculture with a focus on soil health innovations to help guide the growing universe of farmers who apply no-till to organic farming. More to come there. And before I go, I want to give a quick shout-out to our podcast editor, Joe Kinsley, who produced this one a bit early for us. At this very moment, he's on the beaches of Portugal with his family. Enjoy the sand and several glasses of port, Joe. Enjoy. Thanks for joining me for today's sit down with Joe Bassett and Don Equipment. Till next time, I'm Mike Lesser of Farm Equipment and No-Till Farmer, signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs. <laughs>